0: You put your trust in him, oftentimes that peace comes right after that. And I hope that that song spoke to you today. Welcome. I'm Pastor Mark. If you don't know me and you're new, I'm one of the pastors here at the church. We love it when new people come our way and that happens every single week. And uh, we try to let new people know the same thing basically every week, which is number one, go by our welcome desk. It's right there by the front doors. We want to meet you. We want to put a gift bag in your hands. We want to love on you and just let you know that we really are thrilled that you're here and get that bag. There's no strings attached. We just want to be a blessing. And then secondly, there's a class designed specifically for you called Intro to Harvest. Uh, Our next class, those happen monthly, our next one is today. So if some of you are signed up for that and I'll see you in that class right after the service, some of you are not and you're like, oh man, I meant to, I should have, I want to go to that. If you didn't sign up, that's fine. Still come. We're ready for you. We'll have a great time. Uh, We have refreshments, all those sorts of things. And we'll spend an hour together and help you know uh, what our church is all about and how you can get connected to what God is doing here at Harvest and we would love to host you for that. I do want to take a little bit of time and just walk through a few different events, not to be redundant on some of the announcement video, but I want you to understand our heart and a little bit of what's behind a few things that are coming up uh, this summer. So I'm not going to hit all the things that are happening this summer, obviously, but let me hit them in chronological order. Uh, First of all, tonight, there is a workshop tonight. It's two hours, 4.30 to 6.30. It's on the deity of Jesus. Uh, This will go by faster than you think, and we'll have it in different compartments. I'll teach some, there'll be some Q&A, there'll there'll be a lot of interaction, and it'll be a lot of fun. So if you're very familiar with the deity of Jesus, or perhaps you're new to faith and you're not familiar, or anywhere in between, I promise you, you will learn something, it will be profitable for you. Uh, There's also childcare, and and kids have their own program going on for those two hours as well, and uh, we may even give you peanut M&Ms, we'll see. But it'll be a great time tonight at 4.30 right here in this room. And then two weeks from now is our homecoming. So that is, Pastor Skelly's gonna be back, he's gonna be our guest. We're having homecoming for three groups of people, okay? Group number one is if you're new and you're like, who is this Pastor Skelly person? I have heard of him, but I'm new, I've never met him. And I understand that there's a measure of our church now that uh, you've never met Pastor Skelly. And he pastored here for 20 years and has been massively influential in the history of our church. And we want you to know him, hear him preach, have a little bit of connection with him and, and understand a little bit of the history of our church. So if you're new Come, this isn't like that day for the old timers, and like this isn't for me. We want you to be here. Uh, we're going to have a cookout afterwards and just hang out and just have a good time that day. And we want you to stay. We want you to hang out with your church family. We want you to eat with us. And I know it's Father's Day, and some of you may have some plans, and I apologize for that. It just was the only day that really worked to, to put this day. Uh, but hopefully, you'll stick around and we'll just have a good time. We'll just have a good time that day. Uh, but also, if you've been around the church for a while and you're like, I know Pastor Skelly, and I love Pastor Skelly, and I can't wait. It's for you too, okay? Not just the people who don't know him, but it's also for you as well. But I will say there's a third group of people, and before I tell you what that group is, I will say this. I have never mentioned this from the pulpit, nor do I think that I ever will, but today I feel led to say it, and and so I'm going to say it today. There's a third group of people, and that's the, I've been around for a while, and I know Pastor Skelly, but I'm not completely amped about homecoming, if I'm honest. And I think that it's a very small minority that's in the room, but I've been here for five years now pastoring you, and I've had enough dinners and enough conversations to know that there is a small portion that would be in that boat. For whatever reason, and I'm not going to list any reasons, but for one reason or another, the way the transition happened or was very abrupt or I felt like I got broken up with or whatever it is, something about it set your teeth on edge, and your teeth are still set on edge. And I want you to know that we are having this day for you as well. And if I'm completely honest, the day is, is most targeted at you because I want you to, uh, to, to have a good time and to come. And if there's a little bit of bitterness that you're still struggling with, I want you to let go of it. And I want you to, to deal with that. And I want you to don't stay home on that day and live stream. Don't go to a different church on that day you more than anybody, you need to come and you need to remember uh, so many good times and so many good memories and, and all of the influence and wisdom that, that you got over the years from Pastor Skelly. You need to have a great time as well. And I hope that you'll not just come. I hope that you'll come with a note or a card in your hand that is 100% positive, not like 99% positive than a PS at the end that's a little bit negative. I hope that you will come and that you will just have a great day because really it's, it's for us to have a celebration together and to take a trip down memory lane a little bit and just to have a good time together as a church family. So I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm, I'm pumped about it. And I, and I hope and I trust that you are as well. Then after that, about a month from now, we have our VBS. I'll talk more about VBS next week, but these are available for you. They're out by all of the exits. Uh, these are for you to pass out to maybe some people in your neighborhood or, or maybe your grandkids or something like that. You can also text someone a link or an invite. It's all on our website. But these are invites to VBS. This is a huge event for us. We have a lot of kids that come not just from our church but from, from other places in the community that come to this. Uh, we do our best to pull out all the stops and, and we're going to have an amazing time this year. We've already put so much work and planning into this. So if you know someone, invite them and, and ask them to come. Many of you perhaps were saved in your adolescence or out of EBS. Uh, so I hope that you'll invite. And if you want to come be a part and you want to volunteer, you can sign up on the website for that as well. And I hope that you will, if, even if you can only volunteer for a day or two, uh, we would love your help. We're going to have a lot of fun. If you're a volunteer, we'll give you a popsicle still. You can jump in the bounce house or something too. You know, you, We'll have a great time together, even the volunteers, just uh, loving on kids and trying to help them know the Lord and love the Lord. And it's going to be a great time. So that's coming up. And then lastly, and I hate to give you so many things, uh, this one is a ways away. It's September the 4th. But on September the 4th, it's a Saturday. We will have Gary Chapman with us to do a marriage conference. Many of you would know Gary Chapman. Uh, he wrote the Five Love Languages, which is a New York Times bestseller, uh, very famous. I, I guess I should say, uh, man in evangelicalism who uh, who has helped and influenced a lot of marriages. Uh, we're letting you know about this so far in advance because you, as our church family, uh, will have an opportunity to sign up for this first. So this is a ticketed event. Uh, there is a cost associated with it. Uh, it's, there's five different sessions. It's basically a seminar for a Saturday. The cost for a couple to attend this is uh, it's $30 a person. It's $60 for the couple. And you have access to this first. So what will happen in two weeks uh, Gary Chapman on his website, and then Moody Press, who partners with him, they will begin to publicize this, and there will be other people who will see that he's having a seminar here and will begin to buy tickets and get seats. And there's, there's a limited amount of seats. We're not going to put seven or 800 people in here. I think, I think it's capped at 550 or 600, if I remember correctly. So you have access to that first. It's not to say that if you don't sign up in these next two weeks that you can't, But it is to say, if you don't sign up in the next couple weeks, there is a chance that that will sell out and you will not be able to get tickets. So we very rarely do a ticketed event. But for this one, uh, the nature of the beast, we just, we had to, we didn't feel like we could just say, open up the doors and just have too many people. So that's for you. Uh, At the end of the day, we are excited about this. It'll be a tremendous opportunity for you to invest in your marriage. All of the details are on the website, the schedule, the topics, Everything you would want to know is right on our homepage, harvestbaptist.info. You can sign up, you can pay, you can do that all through the website. I will say this would be a tremendous gift if you know someone, a coworker, a neighbor, uh, maybe your own family that's having some marriage problems or struggles or something. This would be a great gift to give to them, and it's going to be an awesome day. We're really, really amped about it. So that's, I know it's a ways away. September feels like forever from now. Uh, but you have early access and you get to sign up for this first if you want to in the next two weeks and then after two weeks it's going to go public so that makes sense all right, so that's, uh, I think that's all that I have to say, okay? That was more than I probably should say about events that are happening, but we are excited about not just these, but some other ones that the summer has in store for us and hoping and praying that this will be a time over these next few months of growth and investing in your children, your family, your marriages, your spiritual walk, and, uh, and we're really excited about it. So Esther chapter number eight, that's where we're at this morning. Esther chapter number eight, as you turn there, I'm going to take a minute, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask the Lord to, uh, to speak with us and to meet with us and, uh, and just ask His blessing on today. Father, we come to You right now just taking a pause, asking You to bless these summer months as we as a church family, as we get together and we, uh, we fellowship, we learn, we grow, we talk, we have some cookouts, all the rest of it. Lord, may it be a profitable time, I do pray that this would be a time where, Our spiritual rhythms are not disrupted and and we're, we're off kilter spiritually, but Lord, that we would grow and that we would flourish this summer. Lord, I pray today that you would help us as we open your word and we begin to study and learn and grow. We readily admit that we need you. We want you to speak to us. We want you to teach us. We want you to shape us. We want you to convict us. So help us today, we ask from Esther chapter number eight, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are approaching the end of the story, and I must admit, I'm a little warm today, so I'm going to take this off. We're approaching the, uh, the last three chapters of the story. Really, I like to think of it as the last two chapters of the story because chapter 10 is just three verses. It's really, really short, and this is the part of the story that people are not very familiar with. If you've been around church for any length of time... You probably know the cliff note version of Esther, where Esther is this woman who, uh, through a series of events, becomes the queen of Persia, and she uses her position to mediate for her people because Haman, this bad guy, wants to kill them all, and she gets favor from the king, and Haman dies, and... Normally, that's where people, kind of their knowledge of the story ends, that Haman dies and, and out comes, you know, Dorothy and Glenda and the munchkins and ding-dong, the witch is dead and, you know, the, ha, the, end the end, it's great. But there's more to the story than that. There's chapters 8, and there's chapters 9, and there's chapters 10, and we get to examine those today. So let's begin to walk through chapter 8. Next week, we'll hit 9 and 10, and we'll actually be done with the book of Esther next week, Lord willing. So here we go, Esther chapter number 8, look at verse 1. On that day, what day? Well, the same day that Mordecai was exalted and Haman had to lead him around the city and then there was the banquet and then Esther exposed Haman and Haman died. Same day, that day, did King King Ahasuerus give the house of Haman, the Jew's enemy, unto Esther the queen and Mordecai came before the king and Esther had told what he was unto her. And the king took off his ring, which he had taken from Haman and he gave it to Mordecai and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So here's what happens. The king gives the house, the estate, the wealth of Haman to Esther. Esther then turns around and gives it to Mordecai which seems very fitting. Mordecai took Esther in. Mordecai took care of Esther as as she was young and in her adolescence. And now Esther's returning the favor. This is generally how it should go, that uh, parents take care of of their kids. And then if you do that well, theoretically, you'll grow up and your kids will take care of you. That's natural. That's normal. And Esther's now taking care of Mordecai a little bit, giving him that. But then the king puts the signet ring on Mordecai's finger that was on Haman's finger. So I will remind you, the signet ring is more or less power of attorney. It is the ability to act on someone else's behalf legally and to sign laws on their behalf, to make decisions on their behalf. So this is a big deal. Mordecai just got promoted to prime minister, to second command, to vice president. And this is, a, it's a big day for Mordecai, Right. He goes from death hanging over his head to being led around the city by Haman that Haman is done away with. And now he's promoted. He's just become a man who had very little power. Now he has a lot of power. A man who had maybe a, a little bit of wealth, probably a, a medium income to now a lot of wealth. A man who had an average government job to being the vice president of the nation, more or less. So the grace And the providence of God and just the blessings of God are being bestowed upon Mordecai here. And this is kind of the point of the story where you think, all right, cue the end of movie feel-good music that we can relax. And and this this is all perfect and this is great. And what a fantastic, you know, story right off into the sunset, you guys. But there's more. Verse number three, you find this concern that's in Esther. And we'll find in a moment that two months have gone by that two months in between this promotion and now Esther going to actually mediate on behalf of her people again. Verse three, Esther spake yet again before the king and fell down at his feet and besought him with tears to put away the mischief of Haman the Agagite and his device that he had devised against the Jews. So in spite of Haman's death and Mordecai's exaltation, the Jews are still doomed to destruction because there is an irreversible decree. Haman had this signed into law, and the law of the Medes and Persians is that even if the guy 's dead, you can 't veto it, you can 't annul it, you can 't set it aside. That law is still in existence, and that there 's still a David set that people can go destroy the Jewish community and can spoil them and take whatever they want and Esther and Mordecai know this, they know that there 's still a very real threat, not to them. Personally, not to Esther and Mordecai, they're fine, but to the entire Jewish community across the empire, there's still this massive threat. So she actually, it says she comes before the king, she falls down, she's crying, there's tears, she's weeping. Very different approach than chapter 5. If you remember chapter 5, she gets all dolled up and she kind of stands off in the corner over against the wall and is trying to, like, you know, catch the king's eye and get his attention and come here. And this time she goes in emotionally charged, and falls down and is weeping. Verse number four, though, the king has the same response. He holds out his scepter. He holds out the golden scepter toward Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king and said, if it pleased the king, if I found favor in his sight, and the thing seemed right before the king, and I'd be pleasing in his eyes. So there's these these courteous, respectful phrases, once again, it's the right disposition, but it also underscores the pressure that Esther still feels around her husband. She is not at all certain that she's going to make a request, and that request is going to be granted her. So she's very courteous, and here's her request. Let it be written to reverse the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. I don't know if you say Hamadatha that way. You just When you get the tricky words, read them fast, read them quick, and, and just keep moving. People think you know what you're talking about he wrote to destroy the Jews, which are in all the king's provinces, for how can I endure to see the evil that shall come unto my people, or how can I endure to see the the destruction of my kindred? So king, here's my request. Reverse the law that Haman made, please. Could you please undo this? My people are still in the shadow of death, and I can't bear this. How could I bear this, that my people are still under destruction? So you see a lot a passion, a lot of emotion. What is this all about? Why the passion? Why the emotion, Esther? And the answer is very simply one word, people. There is all of this passion and emotion because of people. Esther is fine. Esther is safe. Esther is powerful. Esther is rich. Esther is, there's no risk to her life really now. So why is she so emotional? Because She's not concerned about herself. She's concerned about the people of God, right? And this is just a very bottom-shelf truth for us that what really matters when push comes to shove is people. This, and you think about Esther. Th- this is a woman who is in her probably early to mid-20s. We're not for sure, but probably early to mid-20s. She's had a rough upbringing. Mom has died. Dad has died. Adopted dad has to take her in. She's an, she's an orphan girl. Uh, She doesn't have a mom, best we know. We never read about Mordecai's wife or that she has a mother figure in her life. And she could have said, look, I've had a hard life. I've had a tough road. This really hasn't been entirely fair. My husband's a jerk. Uh, My parents died when I was little. I don't have a a mom. My family's a wreck. And you know what? Life's going to be all about me. And honestly, that would have been pretty stereotypical for what we see in our culture of there's a lot of 20-somethings who at least perceive that they come from a dysfunctional family, which, you know, side note, every family is dysfunctional to a degree, but there's a lot of 20-somethings who I, I came from a dysfunctional family or someone didn't treat me right or I didn't get my participation trophy, they didn't let me on, you know, the Little League team, and they spend their days... Sulking and pouting in the corner with with their thumb in their mouth, crying about what could have been, completely self-absorbed, completely concerned for themselves. But here's a a 20-something-year-old young lady who says, you know what, I'm fine, I'm safe, although my my life is dysfunctional, really, but I'm going to be concerned about other people. I'm going to try to put them first. I'm going to care about them. I'm going to grieve about them. I'm going to go beseech on their behalf. I'm going to be concerned about people. And that is a perfect example of where we should be when it's all said and done as a church, as individuals, you should be concerned about people. Esther has a lot of stuff at this point. You're going to see in a minute the Mordecai has a lot of stuff. He has a whole new wardrobe. He has a whole lot of new gear. But stuff is trivial compared to people. The stuff that the king gave them, position, wealth, house, estate, that really is when it comes to people. Compare that to people, it doesn't matter. People are what's important. And Esther, she understands this. And furthermore, there's a lot of evangelistic implications here. And we'll spell this out further in a little bit. But you tell me, yes or no, is Esther safe? Is she saved at this point in time? Not a true question. She is. She, she really is. She is safe. She's fine. No one's going to come in her palace and, and assault her at this point in time. She's safe. Mordecai's second command, he's pretty safe. But there's a whole lot of other people that they're not saved. And Esther is concerned about that. Although she's saved, there's all these other people that aren't saved. So there's going to be concern in her heart. There's going to be intercession in the throne room. There's going to be a willingness to sacrifice and there's going to be a great template for missionary endeavors that yes, while I'm saved and I want to celebrate that and I want to enjoy that, I also will have a concern in my heart for other people who aren't saved and there'll be a willingness in my heart to sacrifice for them. I'm even willing to go into the throne room and intermediate or beseech God on their behalf that that should be our heart. And Esther is a great example here. This is even the example that we would see from the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter nine, "'I say the truth, I lie not, "'my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, "'that I have great heaviness "'and continual sorrow in my heart.'" Wait, you aren't you the guy that wrote Philippians that was like the letter of joy and like pom-poms and like joy in Jesus sort of guy? Continual heaviness, sorrow in your heart? "'Yes, for I could wish that myself "'were a curse from Christ for my brethren, "'my kinsmen according to the flesh.'" Paul understands, I'm saved, I'm good, I know Jesus, I'm going to heaven. Awesome, but there are other people that aren't going to heaven and I'm concerned about them and I'm grieved for them. And while I have joy in the Lord, yes, I also have a heaviness in my soul that people need Jesus and people need the good news and I want to give my life proclaiming the good news to them. And Esther has the same heartbeat, the same heartbeat that I'm safe, but they're not. So, so let me mourn, let me be grieved and let me be burdened to try to, to save them, to try to help them. Here's what happens in verse number 7. We're going to find that the decree is reversed, but not exactly how Esther wanted it to be. Verse 7. King Ahasuerus said unto Esther the queen and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and him have they hanged upon the gallows, because he laid his hand on the Jews. Write ye also for the Jews as it liketh you in the king's name. Fill it with the king's ring. For the writing which is written in the king's name, and filled with the king's ring, may no man reverse." So, more or less, what he says is, Esther, all right, first of all, let me remind you I've done a lot for you. That's what verse seven's all about. You know, I, I you're here, okay, I, there's favor, what do you want? I did, like, I did take care of Haman for you, I, I did give you a lot of stuff, I have taken care of you, and you want me to reverse the decree, but no, but you can do it. If if you if you want to come up with the law and you want to come up with some verbiage, I'm not going to spend my time on it, but knock yourself out. You have my ring, go ahead, you, you can... You know, go to town, do what you want. So, verse number nine is good enough. Then were the king's scribes called at that time in the third month, that is the month Savannah, on the twentieth day thereof. So, we know the exact date this was. This is June 25th, 474 B.C. This was the day after my birthday. I was for, a few years later, I was born. But, I'm um, June 24th, this is June 25th, okay? June 25th, we also know the exact day that Haman's decree was, which is roughly two months and 10 days prior. And we know Haman's decree came, then Mordecai, then the three days of fasting, then the petition, then the next day. So we know the timeline to know that this is roughly ten months, or two months, excuse me, after Haman dies and Mordecai is exalted and they get his estate. It's roughly two months have gone by. But they're going to now sit down and they're going to make this decree. So here it is, middle of verse 9. It was written, according to all that Mordecai had commanded to the Jews, And to the lieutenants, to the deputies, the rulers of the provinces, which are from India and to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, unto every province according to the writing thereof, and every people after their language, and to the Jews according to their writing, according to their language. What's all this about? All it is is the exact same verbiage you saw in chapter 3, that what it's letting you know is the decree that Haman sent out to all the provinces and all the people and all their languages. Mordecai does the same thing. Let's get it to the same group of people, everybody. Let's make sure everybody can hear. Let's put it in all their languages. Let's be just as thorough with this law as we were with the previous law, verse number 10. And he wrote and King Ahasuerus' name, he sealed it with the king's ring, and he sent letters by post on horseback and riders on mules and camels and young dromedaries, which you would be, probably read that and think like, okay, like, I don't, why do I need to know like the animals you said? It's that, trying to communicate to you uh, all this, you know, horses and camels and, and mules and all this stuff. That This is a very important message. They wanted to be sure that they got it to the entire far-flung empire, that whatever resources they need to use, however they need to, to, to do it, they are going to be sure that at all costs they get this very important decree to everybody that it gets to every nook and cranny of the empire, just as Haman's decree had got to every nook and cranny of the empire. So, what is this very important message? What is the decree? What's the new law you made? What have you done? Here it is, verse 11. Wherein the king granted the Jews, which were in every city, to gather themselves together and to stand for their life, to destroy, to slay, and to cause to perish all the power of the people and province that would assault them, both little ones and women, and to take the spoil of them for a prey upon one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, namely, upon the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar. Okay? So this is going to be an emotional shift in the text for a minute. We're going from Esther, emotion, concern, love, hugs, to kill the women and children. Okay? So this is, this is an emotional shift, but it's, it's what it says. We're going to talk about something that is not a lot complicated, but a little bit complicated. And to be just candid and frank, a passage of Scripture, this and others like it, you know, Joshua going into Jericho or those sorts of things, that oftentimes skeptics or unbelievers will look at and say, like, see, that's why I don't like the Bible. You know, there's there's all this, like, God and, 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 you know, permitting His people to go kill other people and all this bloodthirstiness, and, and it's not just, like, kill them, but it mentions, like the women, the children, spoiling them, taking their money. You know, this seems like it's filled with genocide or racism or nationalism at the very least. And, and this, this, you know, the God of the Old Testament seems different than the God of the New Testament. These sorts of, of arguments are oftentimes put forth by people who, who really are on Team Jesus and don't like the Bible. So a couple notes. All right, first of all, this is why we teach and preach through books of the Bible verse by verse, phrase by phrase, to be honest, okay? Uh, I personally would never choose to do, like, a topical study on, let's look at all the time God told his people to go kill everyone, including the women and children, right? Like, that, that would not be a very fun topical series, I wouldn't think, but... This, the text says what it says. This is why we do what we do as a church and we preach through books of the Bible this way because you don't want to hobby horse the Bible and just pick the, the parts that are fluffy and fun and easy and celebratory and ignore the tough stuff, right? We do this so that we hit these parts and we have to talk about them. Second, and this is important to note, you are going to find through the remainder of chapter 8 and then the entirety of chapter 9 that the narrator of Esther, we don't know exactly who wrote Esther, but whoever the narrator is, whoever is writing this via God, of course, but the narrator expects us to see these events as good news. They are going to hear these decrees, and there's going to be a lot of cheering and a lot of celebration. And if you or I spend our entire sermon today, apologizing for these events, we're going to miss the thrust of the text. So I'm not going to apologize for what it says, but I am going to explain it a little bit so that the remainder of today and then all of next week, because it gets, it gets heavier and a bit more thick even next week because they start killing people. Uh, and most people don't realize that's how the book of Esther ends, like hip, hip, hooray. You know, we killed a bunch of people, but that's how it ends. I want us to understand as we approach next week and approach it with the narrator's perspective of cheer and gladness and do a bit of the heavy lifting today. So, when you come to portions of scripture like this, there are only a few options. Option one, ignore it. Read it fast, hope you didn't catch the women and children part and keep moving, okay? Obviously, we're not doing that today. I think it's a bad idea, don't ignore it, okay? Option two, you can change it. And to be honest, any passage of scripture that doesn't suit your fancy, you can go find some scholar who has more degrees than a thermometer who will do a lot of mental gymnastics to explain it away, okay? I don't care if you're looking at some of the bloodshed in the Old Testament or if you're looking at what the Bible has to say about sexuality or what it has to say about gender roles or anything you don't like, the wrath of God, you can go find somebody who's supposedly smart who will do a big song and dance to try to explain it all away and change the plain reading of the text. That's a bad idea too, okay? You, you don't want to take into your reading of the Bible, oh, here's the plain understanding, but I don't really like it, so let me see how I can change it. Not a good idea, okay? It's not your word, it's God's. Thirdly, you can apologize for it. And I'm not gonna do that today. I'm not gonna apologize for it, and in the end of the sermon, and next week, we're gonna approach it how, how the text is laid out, and we're gonna celebrate what, what's meant to be celebrated. We're not gonna apologize for it. And a lot of, there are a lot of pastors who approach this, and while they won't change it or ignore it, they more or less will apologize for it and seek to water it down and say, like, you know, those are kind of like God's junior high years. Like, you know, he, he's matured some and he's changed some. We all did some stuff in junior high and said some stuff. We wish we could have taken back or taken a different approach, and now he grew up a little bit. Of course, they wouldn't use those words, but there are a lot of pastors who will more or less take that approach to the Old Testament and then a completely different approach to the New Testament. You know, God's in college now. He he grew up and, and he got out of junior high. All of that is trash, okay? Don't ignore it, don't change it, don't apologize for it. What I want to do is what I think should be done, teach it. Look at it, read it, get the plain understanding of it and then try to teach it. So that's my job today. And frankly, it's my honor and my privilege every Sunday to do my best to open this up and say, this is what it says. Let's understand it. So here is why this decree is fitting, okay? Number one, this is an exact reversal of Haman's edict. So much of the language that would cause us consternation about women and children and spoiling them That is exact language that was in Haman's decree. If you go back and you read chapter 3, you'll find that all they're doing is mirroring the decrees. And they're saying that exact thing that he said, we're going to say the exact same thing, only now we can defend ourselves. So a lot of the verbiage is there not because they actually intend for the Jewish people to carry it out, but because they want to mirror Haman's decree. And the best example of that is the spoiling. People are told two months prior, go kill the Jews, have a field day, and spoil them and take all their goods. The Jews are told you can defend yourself, and we'll get to self-defense in a minute, but you can defend yourself, and you can take their stuff if you kill them. And chapter 9 will make it abundantly clear that while the laws mirrored each other as they should have, the Jews purposely did not spoil them. And they did not take goods, and they did not plunder, and they did not get rich off of their enemies who wanted to kill them and they killed them first, that they did not get rich off of this. So the laws are meant to mirror each other. We don't have a record of women and children being killed. However, they very likely could have, okay? So the reason that a lot of this verbiage is here is because it's just meant to to reflect what Haman's decree originally said. But there's a very important phrase here in verse 11 that tells us that this is all about self-defense. There is this phrase in verse 11 in the middle of it that would assault them. Now, I'll be honest. There are other portions of Scripture where Jewish people are permitted via God to go kill their enemies and destroy them, but it's not a self-defense thing. It is an offensive thing. That's not this text, okay? So that's outside the scope of today's sermon. One day we'll hit that and we'll talk more about that. Today I'm just looking at this text. This text says the people that raise up arms and come to assault you, you then can meet that force with force. And if they are trying to kill you, you can kill them. If he comes with his wife and his 13-year-old son to kill you and to take your stuff, then you now legally, although you didn't prior prior to this, run for the hills as your best recourse. And they're very concerned about this as they should have been. Now you have the legal permissibility to act in self-defense. And that seems relatively fitting, at least it should to most of us as Americans, because a lot of our laws of our society are based off of this, right? If someone breaks into your house with, the, with malicious intent to hurt you, you have the right legally to meet that force with force. Even up to the point of death, we, we value all life. It is always tragic and sad when someone's life is taken. However, if someone is breaking into your house maliciously to kill you and you act in self-defense, that's legally permissible, right? If a police officer pulls up to a crime scene and people start, you know, opening up and firing at them, that police officer is legally permitted to take out his gun and to shoot back at them. And we think that should be, at least I hope we do. That's, that's very normal, okay? That's, 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 I would say, a good thing, that our laws permit that this is a good thing here that now the law is allowing the jewish people to act in self-defense you also find that this law was limited to one day haman's law was limited to one day and you find that the days are the same so the day that they come to kill you on that day you can act in self-defense and that it's limited to one day to prevent vigilantism To prevent there just being chaos and every day somebody's killing somebody over this and they said and this. It's it's there's gonna be one day. We can't change Haman's law. We can't change that people are permitted to come after the Jews on this day. What we can change is say, we're giving you nine months' notice, start gearing up, get ready, you can defend yourself, okay? So this this is limited to one day, and I'll remind you that they don't spoil their enemies. They actually don't do that, they just act in self-defense. Now, let me let me just be abundantly clear in case there's any misconception. Uh, this is not intended to be normative for your behavior. Acting in self-defense, fine, but please do not read the text and say. Oh, you know what? God is talking about holy war and trying to conquer other people and be a crusader. So you know what? I, I'm just going to go to the gun range. I'm going to get my boys together. I'm going to line my walls with AKs. I'm going to have my wife start churning butter and start putting canned goods under the, under the staircase and just gear up for, you know, the, the, the day where we're just, you know, it's all going to come to an end and we're just going to go crazy, right? Don't tread on me. And we're just going to... No, it's not saying that, okay? So please don't take that from the text. But this is saying that the Jewish people are permitted, if the force comes against them, they can match that force. Tit for tat, they can match that force, which sounds very reasonable. All right, that's all explained away. Now we get to just celebrate the text as we should through the rest of 8 and through the rest of of chapter number 9. Here's the good news, and it's, it's spread all over the place. Verse 13, the copy of the writing for a commandment to be given in every province was published unto all people and that the Jews should be ready against the day to avenge themselves on their enemies. So the post that rode upon mules and camels went out, being hastened and pressed by the king's commandment, and the decree was given at Shushan the palace. And Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white, and with a great crown of gold, and with a garment of fine linen and purple, and the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. So apparently mordecai got a wardrobe upgrade okay he got some money and he took it he did a little bit of shopping he put some rims on his chariot and and he is now living large and he and he looks good the city is rejoicing he's like this war hero he's popular everybody knows him he's second in command he's on the cover of time magazine all the late night talk show hosts want to have him on to talk to him and everyone is celebrating that, that mordecai is now ruling and this decree went out if you remember in chapter three. This decree went from Haman, and the city was perplexed. Not just Jewish people, but everybody was like, say what? Like, since when do we just allow genocide to happen for the fun of it, just, just because it's financially convenient? And so now that a new law is there to prohibit this from happening in full force, now the, the whole palace, Shushan, they are happy, they are rejoicing. This seems like it should be this way. This seems just, this seems fair, this seems right. Verse number 16 and the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor, and in every province and in every city, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness and a feast and a good day. So we're meant to picture this, okay? Sure, there's Jewish people in Shushan the palace, but you're living 2,500 years ago. This kingdom is 300 million square miles. Like this is this is huge. And two months prior. This decree went out from Haman, and it went everywhere, all right? Think of the people in Jerusalem. They're a long way away. It goes all the way to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, mind you, that they just recently got their walls kind of reconstructed with Nehemiah. They have the, the temple foundation laid, but they're still in a really tender, vulnerable spot. They are surrounded by their enemies, and now you hear that the power said, have Adam, go to town. They can't do a thing about it. You're worried, Right? You are a long way away from the palace. You don't know what's happening in the palace. All you know is somebody showed up and, and gave a decree, and now you're perplexed. Now you're fasting, you're praying, you're mourning, and two months have gone by, and it's still now. Now the clock is ticking. We're nine months away from our day of destruction, and you don't know what's happening. Nobody emailed you from Shushan. Yep, uh, Mordecai got his plan together. Pray for him. Like you have no idea what's happening. You have no idea that Esther is is interceding. You may not even know that Esther is Jewish. You, you have no idea what's happening. Nobody sent you a pigeon. And then one day... Two months later, the way I picture it is two people like roll up into a city. I picture one guy with a scroll and one guy with a boombox on his shoulder. It's just how my mind works, okay? So the first guy pulls up, opens a scroll, and says, "Hear ye, hear ye!" You know, Mordecai has made a new law that you can act in self-defense. And then the boombox guy hits play, and it just celebrate good times, come on! And everybody just like rejoices and, and they party and they're glad and they're happy like this. This is meant to be a celebration, and the the text communicates that. There's all this light and joy and happy, and they're relieved, as they should be. So they eat and they drink and they party, and yet nine days from now, that's going to be a heavy day, but we at least have recourse. We at least can be prepared. We can put a plan together. We don't have to be taken advantage of, and now this burden has been lifted for all of these millions of people across the empire. Now. There's several things I want you to know as we end Esther chapter number eight and we eventually get to communion here at the end of this service. Three things primarily. Number one, let me point out that God has given power to a couple people, Esther and Mordecai namely, and he has given them power so that they will use that power to go help other people. He puts Mordecai in a position of being second command with the signet ring. He puts Esther in a position to be queen not so that they can be self-absorbed, so that they can just heap unto themselves wealth and security and, and just advantage themselves over and over and over again. He puts them in this position because there are a lot of powerless people. This isn't a democracy. There's not an elected official that you can email. There's, there's no senators or congressmen. There's, there's no recourse for you over this law. And there are a lot of people who are up a creek and they have no recourse. And God in his providence puts these two people here so that they can take their power, their position, their wealth, their status, and they can leverage that to the advantage of other people. And this is a a beautiful example of what should be normative even in the Christian community. Some of you, not all of you, but some of you have some resources, some power, some connections, some abilities that you can leverage for other people who don't have what you have. Many of you have perhaps I'm an elected official or I serve on the township board or I run a business and as such that's given me some connections within my own little community or perhaps I'm a, I'm a doctor or I'm a lawyer or I'm a judge or somehow I have potentially more power or more authority or more connections or more resources to be leveraged than the, than the average pedestrian does. And there's two approaches to this in our culture that are, that are completely wrong. One approach is feel bad about it, shame on you. You probably got that because your mommy and daddy handed it down to you and you you shouldn't have taken that from them. It's because of their inheritance and you should just feel bad now that you have all this stuff or all this affluence or all this power, all these connections. That's dumb. The second approach is take it, accept it, but use it to your own advantage. Just take it and make it all about you and be completely self-absorbed. The biblical approach is to take what God has entrusted you with and understand not in pride but in humility You know what, I don't know why he gave me this. I don't know why he gave me the the dad or the grandfather who passed this stuff down to me. I don't know why I'm able to be in this position and and I'm able to to have this when someone else does. I don't know exactly why my business flourished and theirs didn't. But the reality is it did and I'm in this position so I'm going to say, thank you, God. Let me steward it well. That's the heartbeat that God wants for his people. Thank you for the position, thank you for the privilege, thank you for the power, thank you for the resources, but I won't use these selfishly, I'm going to use these for other people, right? This is exactly what Proverbs tells us in Proverbs chapter number 11. It says, when it goeth well with the righteous, the city rejoices, and when the wicked perish, there is shouting. Now, what, what an unbelievable little, little verse, it was written long before Esther and long before Mordecai. Well, what what a verse that sums up Mordecai and Haman, right? The righteous succeeding, the city rejoicing; the wicked perish, and the city shouting about that. Verse eleven: By the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted, but it is overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. So I want you to understand what this is describing. This is describing a group of people who have risen to the top, who have been successful, who are best in their field, who are influential who have money or power or authority or resources, and the city doesn't envy them. The city doesn't hate them for it. The city doesn't want what they have. The city rejoices about it. And it's describing a righteous group of people who when they get to the top... They, they are of such character and they are so going to bless others and sow back into the community that the people actually who are around them are willing to celebrate their win as if it was their own, right? They won. They succeeded. They got promoted. They got a blessing. They have a good business. They, and I, I don't have it necessarily, but I'm going to rejoice that they have it because I know they're righteous and I know that they'll steward it well. This is describing Esther and Mordecai. This is describing, Lord willing, who we should be. I would be the first to say as your pastor, work hard, earn money, save well, invest well, have a successful business, be best in your field, put your hand to the plow and give it your best, absolutely, but but as you do that, understand it's not for you. Understand, is it's not, it's not to be selfishly absorbed and just wasted on yourself and yourself and yourself, but it's meant to be that you're a blessing to other people. It's meant to be that you open up the gates wide and you open up the arms wide. And I know, I know so many of you are so good at this. I, I know that I'm preaching to the choir in on this one. I really do. But I will remind you that Esther and Mordecai, they're just such a beautiful example of people who take their power and their wealth, and they steward it in a godly, godly way. So don't, Don't be ashamed that you have any of that if you do, but take it and use it and steward it in a godly way. Secondly, I think that this is so important and so fitting in this text. Mordecai knows that it is not enough for him to write a law that is good news and do nothing with it, but he knows that he has to make the good news known to everybody. Mordecai understands that if I get a whole bunch of good news and I get this law written, I get the scribes together and we get it, and then I just post it on a bulletin board in Shushan, that's going to do the rest of the community and that's going to do the rest of the kingdom very little good because it's only good news if they hear about the good news. It's not going to be good news to them if they don't hear about it, right? Mordecai understands and he really takes even Esther's heart further and he kind of comes to this grand missiological conclusion that as people who are saved, we should be like Esther and have concern for people who aren't saved. We should even go into the throne room and intercede and we should pray. We should be willing to sacrifice. But if all we have is concern and prayer and a willingness to sacrifice, but we never get the good news to people, we fall utterly short. Two thumbs up on the concern, two thumbs up on being willing to pray and, and say, God, would you save them? Two thumbs up on being willing to sacrifice, but when push comes to shove, bottom line is you have to open your mouth and let the good news be known. And Mordecai understands I can get good news in place, but if I don't take it on the dromedaries and the camels and the horses, and if I don't get this published everywhere and in every language, then the good news isn't going to be good news for them. They're going to have no idea they can defend themselves, and when the day of judgment comes, they're going to be killed and vanquished. And this is not going to work out well. So I need to make this known to the ends of the corners, the corners of the earth, the ends of the world. I need to make this known. And if you can't connect those dots missiologically as a church, then I don't know what to tell you. Okay? We as a church understand it's our job to proclaim, to make known. And, I, and this is—I'm not telling you anything new. This is exactly what Paul said in Romans 10. Paul says Romans 10: 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Good news, yes or no? Awesome news, right? God will save anybody. And all they have to do is turn to him in repentance of faith, call on his name. God will save anybody, no matter who they are, the whole world. But Paul, logic as he is, he takes this to the conclusion that you naturally should. Verse 14, how then shall they call on him? They'll call on him. God will save them. They'll call on him. Fantastic. How are they going to call on him in whom they haven't believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Right? Verse 15, and how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. So what this is saying is, yes, God will save anybody, but they have to believe, and to believe they have to hear, and to hear somebody's got to tell them, right? Paul's saying you can have all the concern in the world, and you can have all the good news in the world, but if you don't take it to them, then what good does it do them? So how beautiful, how awesome, how pleasant, how unbelievably magnificent is it for the people that will actually go and tell. So my my bottom shelf encouragement to you as the people of God would be, Yes, have concern. Yes, pray about your loved ones or your family members or the people that that you know that don't know Jesus. Be burdened. Pray for them. Be willing to sacrifice if if, if it comes to that. But at some point, you gotta have beautiful feet that take the good news. At some point, you can't just pray, 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 pray. I'm not demeaning prayer. I love prayer. But at some point, you gotta open your mouth. And my, my question to you would be, who is it that you are opening your mouth with. I'm not asking you who you're concerned about, although there should be people. I'm not asking you who you're praying about, although you should. I'm not asking you if there's a willingness to sacrifice, although there should be. I'm asking you who are you opening your mouth with. Because you can pray all you want if you never open your mouth and you never let the good news known you may as well have been a Jewish person in, in Jerusalem who never got the message that they could defend themselves. You have, you have to open up. You say, I, I don't know, it's uncomfortable, it's, it's difficult, it's, it's, sometimes it's off-putting to people, I don't know what to say, I know. I get it. I have friends that are unsafe too. I understand. I really do. I'm not a super, you know, Christian because I'm a pastor. I struggle with the same stuff you struggle with. But there has, to, there has to be a willingness to say, you know what, I'm going to open my mouth and I'm, I'm just going to tell people Jesus will save you if you put your faith in him and I, I'm going to make that known. Lastly, notice how this rescue begins to be remembered and celebrated. And this is so fitting for us as we, as we move into communion. There's this extreme contrast in the text. You start the text off and Esther is weeping and she's mourning how can I bear this, right? Then you get to the end of the text and it's celebrate good times, come on, right? It's, it's, it's this party and it's this music and it's this joy and it's this lightness and they're both there. They're both there. And as a Christian, we have to understand that, that our our heart is that nuance, that yes, there's burden and concern, yes, but at the same time, there's also a whole lot of celebration and joy and praise that should be ours because we remember that we were rescued. And these people begin I mean, immediately, to stop and to have meals and have feasts. We'll see next week that they institutionalize an actual feast and an actual day of remembrance to remember this, but they begin immediately to celebrate the deliverance that they know. And I think it's fitting for us this morning to have passion for people that don't know Jesus and need to know Jesus, but I also think it's very fitting for us this morning that we celebrate our rescue, that we say that, you know what? We have been saved because Jesus wasn't selfish. We have been saved because Jesus lived for not just himself, but for us. We have been saved because Jesus refused to watch us be destroyed. And Jesus came and then he died on our place and, and, and he gives himself for us. And he goes and now we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who ever lives to make intercession for us. And, and Jesus is that for us. And yes, we're concerned for other people, but we also, as a church, can get together. We can take our little communion cups in just a minute and we can say, you know what? Let's pray and let's celebrate and let's be joyous and let's have a, a proverbial party as it were and say that Jesus is awesome and we can remember him and give him the praise that, is, that he is due today because he saved us, right? So this morning, with that in mind, I want you to take this little communion cup, okay? This is, uh, when Jesus had the, the last supper, they of course had more than a little cup and a little wafer, I know. But certainly symbolic, of what he, what he told us as his believers to do and to follow and to celebrate in. And I want to say up front, it, I want you to participate this morning with us if you know Jesus as your savior, okay? You don't have to be a member of the church, but I think it's fitting to say you do need to know Jesus. You knew at some point in time in your life, you need to have turned to him in repentance in faith and said, Jesus, you're mine and I'm yours, okay? But if that's you, whether you're a member or not, then I'm gonna encourage you right now to to take this and to do this with us. And if it's not you, if if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I would encourage you, then do that right now. You don't have to delay. You don't have to wait till tonight or, or tomorrow or next week or next month. Today can be the day of salvation for you. Today can be the day that you turn to Jesus and you say, Jesus, I really do believe that you died for me and my sins. And I believe that you rose from the dead. And I can't save myself from my own sins. You saved me. I put my trust in you. So right now in this moment, if you don't know Jesus, I, I, my hope is that you'll call out to him, that you'll trust him. But for those of us that do know him, may we take this, this little wafer and may we remember the symbolism that it is. That this is an opportunity for us. Yes, with a bit of somberness.